0: Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment.
1: Welcome, everyone, to episode 101 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad, as always, that you have joined us. Have you visited the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C.? How about the Billy Graham Center Museum at Wheaton College? The Billy Graham Library in Charlotte? If you are a diehard student of the American evangelical experience, you may have even visited Mount Hood the Billy and Helen Sunday House in Winona Lake, Indiana. Or perhaps you even took a tour of Park Street Church while walking the Freedom Trail in Boston. How do these museums present evangelical history? How do they present evangelical history as part of the larger context of American history? How can we engage these exhibits and spaces with a more critical eye? Our guest today, Devin Manzullo-Thomas, is here to help us make sense of these sites. His new book is Exhibiting Evangelicalism, Commemoration and Religion's Presence of the Past. The book is the first account of the growth and development of historical museums created by white evangelical Christians in the United States over the 20th and 21st centuries. As Manzullo-Thomas writes, quote, In their zeal to craft a particular vision of the American past, evangelicals engaged with a variety of public history practices and techniques that made them major players in the field, including becoming early adopters of public history's experiential turn, unquote. Devin will be with us in a moment, but first, let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this bi-monthly podcast that you're listening to right now, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, head over to CurrentPub.com, that's dot com, and click the red support button or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon, that's dot ncom backslash current. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter, or you can follow me on Twitter at Fia one or you can follow Current on Twitter at Current underscore Pub1. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet. And please, please consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Devin Manzullo Thomas is assistant professor of American religious history and interdisciplinary studies at Messiah University, where he teaches courses in Christianity in North America, religious pluralism in America, Christian theology, brethren in Christ, life and thought, and the Wesleyan holiness tradition. He also teaches in the University Honors Program and the First Year General Education Program, which focuses on helping students become critical thinkers and engaged writers. Manzulo Thomas also serves as the director of the E. Morris and D. Leone Cider Institute for Anabaptist, Pietist, and Wesleyan Studies at Messiah. In this role, he helps the university community understand and interpret its theological and historical heritage in its founding denomination, the Brethren in Christ Church. He also directs the Messiah University Archives, supervising collections related to Messiah University, the Brethren in Christ Church, and the Ernest L. Boyer Center, a Messiah alumnus and one of the most significant leaders in American education in the 20th century. Devin writes about the intersection of commemoration, memory, and material culture in American Protestantism. His work has appeared in Church History, Fides et Historia, Mennonite Quarterly Review, the Wesley Theological Journal, the Conrad Grable Review, Brethren in Christ's History and Life, and other scholarly and popular publications. Our interview today is based on his latest book, Exhibiting Evangelicalism, Commemoration, Conservative Christianity, and Religion's Presence of the Past. That book was published in 2022 with the University of Massachusetts Press. Our guest today is Devin Manzullo-Thomas. He is the author of a brand new book, Fresh Off the Press with University of Massachusetts, Exhibiting Evangelicalism, Commemoration and Religion's Presence of the Past. Uh, he's also my colleague at Messiah University, so this is going to be extra fun. Devin, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much, John. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, inviting me
1: and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, you know, I've been kind of talking about, you know, this book with you in the hallways and so forth, you know, for a few years now, ever since you started your dissertation, you know, I was always, you know, every now and then I check in, you know, or we have a conversation about something. Tell me, you know, for those who don't know the background story of this book, How'd you get interested in writing about evangelical museums? Yeah, that's a great question, um,
0: and a question that lots of people want to know, right? Uh, when I tell my students that this is the book that I wrote, they're like, "Isn't that really niche?" Right? Uh, and what I try to what I try to tell them is like, "Yes, and," right? Like, uh, so so my my master's degree is in public history. I did a, a two year master's degree in public history uh, with an with an archival concentration. So so I'm a, a trained archivist. And I did that at Temple University. One of the reasons I did that at Temple University is because at that time, uh, there were scholars of religion in the history department at Temple who I also wanted to work with. Right, my my background as an undergraduate, I had a minor in religious studies, very interested in sort of the history of Christianity, but wanted professionally to be doing something that was engaged beyond the academy. So when I went for my master's, it was to do a master's in public history and to to be thinking about religious history uh, in that process. And so in one of these, uh, you know, uh, graduate seminars I took in my MA. We read um, the Presence of the Past by Roy uh, Rosenzweig and David Thelen, which is, you know, this kind of—I mean, it's 20 plus years old now, but uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was in my master's program, this really important book looking at ways that a broad American public or publics uh, think about, use, consume the past. Right? What do average Americans do with history? based on this kind of extensive survey that they did, right? All of these things. Part of what they're interested in there uh, is not uh, just like broadly, how do Americans think about the past, although they are interested in that, but also how do discrete groups of Americans think about the past? So African-Americans, women, right? How are different kinds of communities in America using, consuming the past? One of the things that Rosenzweig and Thalen do in this book is they say Uh, that even though they paid attention in their sample to kind of different demographics, um, they explicitly removed questions about religion from the questions that they asked their sample, right? And uh, they don't have a particularly convincing to me reason for having done this, right? But the thing that I found fascinating about the book is even though they say that they admit that up front, we didn't ask questions about religion, later on in the book, they admit that their sample forced them To reckon with questions of religion that like their sample brought up religion, brought up personal faith uh, as they were answering these questions about what they do with the past, how they consume the past. And so Rosenzweig and Thalen make this kind of um, gesture at... Uh, ways that religion influences people's practices of the past. They talk very briefly about evangelicals in this book, but in, in my master's program, right, we're reading this book and I'm writing responses for for the seminar, complaining <laughs> about this decision that Rosenzweig and Thalen make, and my advisor, Seth Brueggemann. Um, who was also instructing this particular seminar, uh, he says, you've, you've got to do something with this, right? And that was kind of the, that was the spark, right? For what eventually in my PhD became a dissertation project on
1: specifically evangelicals, public history, and museums in particular. The Presence of the Past book, you know, I read that in graduate school too. I guess at the time I wasn't kind of, had, didn't have the same kind of reaction that you had to it. You know, for me, the reaction to that book was always, uh, and you're right, you're right about religion. I think they were from an era in which, you know, religion was not yet a kind of dominant theme in um, American history, right? You know, I was kind of still on the fringes uh, or done by sort of church historians. Um, But for me, I was always struck by that book, not to get too off track here, about you know how i think i write about this in why study history about how um you know all of these people they they go to museums they go to they go vacationing in all of these places uh williamsburg they spend millions and millions of dollars every year and yet like no one wants to formally study history and i you know this crisis in the majors and all of that kind of stuff yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. a really interesting book but i think you're right to so, you know, you and Brueggemann were right to kind of point out this, um, what is the, what's the word, lacunae lacuna <laughs> <laughs> of the absence of religion. Now, so you you um, go with this impulse that you had as a master's student. And you, again, it's important to note here, you are trained. As an American historian, but also as a public historian, which for those of you who may not be familiar with that term, a public historian is somebody who uh, studies uh, memory, the way we commemorate the past in spaces like museums uh, and so forth. So we'll come back to that in a second because I want to. I want to ask you another question about you know why public historians don't talk about religion. But let's just talk about the kind of framing of of this book. So I think the thread that runs through this book, you're trying to show the way in which some of these museums, and I mentioned them at the beginning of the the podcast before you came on, uh, some of these museums you studied, again, they'll come up again here in the course of a conversation, I'm sure, uh, promote what you describe as evangelical heritage What do you mean by that term? How are you using that phrase, evangelical heritage, in these various different museums that you studied? Yeah. So
0: evangelical heritage is a phrase that I use in the book to describe work that's done by evangelical Christians in the United States, because that's the focus of the project, um, to preserve and interpret the past in public. So it's a, it, it, it's a kind of catch-all phrase for this work that they do. And the way that I kind of unpack that, particularly in the introduction, but then throughout as I'm looking at these different case studies, I, I unpack it in three ways, right? First, evangelical heritage is what I call a conceptual framework. Uh, and in the case of this particular group, it's a narrative framework. So it's a set of stories about the past that people who call themselves evangelicals tell. Um, it's not always the same stories at every museum, uh, but there are sort of similar stories and sometimes the same stories, right, at different museums. Um, but these stories that these people tell, right, this narrative conceptual framework, they, they tell these stories to make sense of the past, but also to kind of um, envision the future, right, or chart a course to the future. So that's what I mean when I talk about it as a conceptual framework. I also talk about it as a distinct way of thinking about history and the purposes of history. So evangelical heritage um, is a way of defining what history is, Uh, and I make the case in the book that it's um, a a, a theological, that there's a kind of an overlap here um, that is is theological about the way that uh, evangelicals understand what history is. Um, evangelical heritage is a way of making sense of how time and change operate. Uh, it's a way of making sense of the sources of knowledge, how we know what we know about the past. Um, but it's also a, a way of um, uh, knowing about why history matters, right? Evangelical heritage um, as a way of thinking about history and its purposes uh, focuses a lot on the usefulness of history and what can be done with history. Uh, The third way that I talk about it in the book is as a set of practices, right? So specific things that these actors do in the exhibit hall, right? Uh, When they are setting up a museum, ways of framing um, what happens in those spaces. Uh, One of the big things that I talk about in the book is that uh, there's an emphasis in evangelical museums on experiencing the past. Uh, One of the things that kept coming up in the archives when I would look at the materials about the creation of these museums is that everyone kept talking about, oh, we don't want this museum to just be a bunch of dusty artifacts with text on it that you kind of passively walk through, right? As if as if there's some museum that only does that, right? Uh, but, you know, they talk all the time about, we want this to be an experience of the past. We want active engagement. They talk about affect and emotion a lot when putting together these exhibits. Uh, and so evangelical heritage is that sense of um, the practices that make for
1: experiencing the past uh, in, these, in these types of, of sites. Is there some, uh, just to follow up here, is there yeah. some difference between, you know, I think if you ask any museum today, right, you know, any museum director, evangelical museum or not, right, I think they, they would use that language of experiencing the past, right? Is there something unique to the way evangelical heritage does this? Or were they doing it before, you know, the interactive museums? Were they breaking ground here? Um, you know, speak to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things one of the claims that I make in the book uh, is that evangelicals were early adopters of what other scholars, museum studies scholars, scholars of public history have called the experiential turn in American public history. Right. This move across the nation at many different types of museums toward a more affective experiential encounter with the past. Um, A lot of scholarship on this experiential turn has focused on the 1970s. Um, I actually think it's a bit older than that. And you can see some instances of this outside often of history museums, but you can see examples of this beginning in the 1960s. But it certainly comes to the kind of cultural fore in the 1970s. And and this is a period of time in which uh, evangelical um, curators and kind of museum people are becoming more active, right? And so we see uh, bigger, better funded museums dedicated to interpreting an evangelical past in public in the 1970s, starting in the 1970s. And so I make the case in the book that, you know, evangelicals were early adopters of this experiential turn. Um, I make that case both from a a sort of educational perspective, right? This is a moment when uh, some of the people that are putting these museums together start getting degrees uh, in, you know, they go to museum studies programs, they go to public history programs. Um, But I also make the case in the book uh, that, the experiential emphasis emerges out of a particularly evangelical uh, sensibility, right? About what what religion is, right? Or, or sort of what personal faith is, and so um, the, the revivalistic impulse that is, I think, deeply uh, embedded in um, evangelicalism, right? This this a call to to warm someone's heart through preaching or through singing, right? Uh, in in the church context, like. that is absolutely what motivates these people to avoid dusty artifacts and boring exhibit labels, right? Is this, this affective uh, kind of experiential religiosity that is part and parcel of evangelicalism
1: in in America. Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. As I listened to you talk, I I was thinking, you know, most of the kind of critique of evangelical media, public life, television, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, everyone else is doing, now we'll have an evangelical version of it, right? You know, we'll have the evangelical God tube instead of YouTube or the, you know, the the Christian music rather. But in this case, it almost sounds like now, again, I'm sure I'm sure it'd be difficult to draw connections between like the first experiential, you know, the experiential people designing the, the experience of World War II museum saying, oh, we need to we need to see what Billy Graham Center is doing. or You know, I doubt that happens. But but you seem to be arguing that, you know, these were innovators in the field in some ways. And it was their their faith their this heart strangely warmed kind of John Wesley kind of thing that may have maybe allowed them to I, I don't know stumble upon this or or I mean, I mean yeah I think I
0: think part of what it is is you know you get these museum curators that go to say um Cooperstown right or some of these other big graduate programs in public history that are training you know Smithsonian curators too right um mm-hmm. and and what they find there is this emphasis on experiential encounters with the past you know, I, I I did some interviews with some of these curators and tried to press them on this. Right, what are you what are you learning in your graduate programs? And none of them said it this explicitly. Uh, but I do think that there was a kind of um, familiarity, right, between that way of engaging the past and what was happening in the the congregational context that they were familiar with or the worship settings that they were familiar with. I think they probably sensed a resonance between these two ways. So right, they're not inventing this, right? Like I I wouldn't go so far as to say like they're innovators here in the sense that they produce this and other people copy them, right? But they are certainly participating in some of the same networks and the same conversations as a much wider
1: array of, of museum professionals. Yeah, that's helpful. That's a helpful distinction. So if, you know, we sometimes talk about history books as making some kind of historiographical kind of intervention into the literature, right? You, you know, what is the contribution that this, your book is making? And, um, you know, I think your one of your most important arguments, or at least one of the most important reasons why we need this book is because there, and we brought this up earlier in the conversation, there is just hardly any religion uh that's you know where religion is not a major theme in public history the discipline of public history and museum studies why do you think public history and museum studies has neglected religion you know what's going on here you know what do you think the issues are um, as to as to why there's been such a gap here yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, one important um, distinction that I sometimes make when I'm talking about public history is I make a distinction between the practice of public history and the scholarship on public history. You know, so you've got these practitioners of public history, curators, exhibit designers, educators, right, people who are on the ground in the trenches doing this work in museums. And I actually think that those folks... Get religion in some way, or or are or, or are compelled, right? Like Rosenzweig and Thalen, right, in their book, like are compelled to talk about religion or incorporated into the exhibits that they de- they design, the educational work that they do, and there are tons of museums across the country, very different sizes and shapes, very different forms of of funding, right, public and private, that engage religion in their exhibits, right? Engage religion in the interpretive work that they do. I think in my book, I'm primarily critical of scholars of public history, right? The people who are producing scholarship like Rosenzweig and Thalen, who have really marginalized religion as a category of analysis, uh, or as something to pay attention to. You know, I, a point I make in my introduction is, um, you know, the Museum of the Bible garners all of this attention from, he, you know, mainstream media outlets, NPR, CNN, all of these places do coverage of the Museum of the Bible when it opens in 2017. But if you went and looked in the pages of the Public Historian, which is the big kind of professional journal for public history practitioners and scholars in the United States, There's no mention of, there's no review of the Museum of the Bible. There's no scholarship that's being done on this site that millions of Americans have been to at this point, that is a stone's throw away from the Smithsonian institutions on the National Mall. Um, To answer your question, I think one of the reasons that this gets uh, ignored, marginalized, is because I think a lot of public historians, scholars of public history, kind of assume that religion doesn't have kind of potency in American public life uh, or at least not the kind of potency that they seem to think um, warrants it as a category of analysis, right? So, So, you know, kind of religion, depending on how we would define that, right, actually does show up in the literature on public history, but it's often rendered as metaphor, right? So lots of scholars of public history will talk about sacred ground, when they're referring to civil war battlefields, or they'll talk about how tourism is, is a pilgrimage, right? And they'll invoke that metaphor, but they're not engaging more deeply or beyond the level of metaphor. Or you see things like Rosenzweig and Thelen, right? Where they're like intentionally excluding these questions um, as if, you know, it couldn't possibly be something that motivates Americans to engage with the past. Religion couldn't possibly be something like that. Uh, and I, I, one of the reasons that I, the kind of irony in that, right, is that practitioners of public history absolutely know that religion is a powerful force in American public life. And that's why they have have come to interpret it in their exhibit halls, right? Um, it's also why some practitioners of public history don't want to talk about it, because religion can be divisive. Religion can be seen as something that contributes to culture war. Uh, right? Um, religion, you know, interpreting religion in a museum setting might be confused for proselytizing or trying to convert people to religious faith. And so, you know, there are these reasons why public uh, practitioners right, public history practitioners might avoid uh, doing, you know, interpreting religion in their sites. But they're very different than the reasons why scholars of public history have seemed to ignore this. And so part of what I'm trying to do here is get public historians, especially scholars of public history, to pay attention to the great literature on religion and memory that has been produced by religious studies scholars. There's a whole broad field of religion and memory work um, across different kind of religious traditions, right? So I'm talking about evangelicals here. There's a great literature out there being produced by religious studies scholars on Judaism and memory, or um, Mormonism and memory. Um, And part of what I really want public history scholars to do, and to a a lesser degree, maybe public history practitioners, is pay attention to this literature, right? Read this literature, because it's really going to change the way that you think about how religion or how history gets done in public, right? That religion is this huge motivator of why people go to house museums, go to museums, um, read history books, right? It's it's a huge force here.
1: Yeah, I I sometimes I sometimes wonder, you know, because of the kind of secular nature of kind of public history that many people confuse. And I think in evangelical heritage, as you describe it, I think there's good reason to confuse a museum with a church, right? Or a museum with a with a proselytizing agent. And again, in many of the examples that you use, I mean, this kind of proselytizing or preaching the gospel is, is, you know, a prime motivator for these uh, museums, right? You don't, you don't just create a museum. I remember, I remember I was on the uh, the advisory board for the faith and discovery center at the American Bible society in Philadelphia. And I got in there for the first two meetings and I was pushing just kind of a straight history, if you could say straight history, right? But, but I say, let's just tell the story, right? And I quickly left the board because I realized like they didn't need my expertise as a as a historian here. They were going to tell the story the way they wanted, and they were going to end with I I haven't visited visited it yet, but, you know, maybe they were trying to talk about ending by handing people a copy of the Bible or, you know, preaching or something. So so for me, you know, that's that's one way of doing it. But I, I, you know, I had written a book on the American Bible Society. I'd like to think I know something about it, but they it was clear they were they were wanting to go in a completely different direction. So there are some reasons why. Um, I think public history might be skeptical of religion (laughs) as a motivating, you know, force for getting people to
0: come. Absolutely. I would argue that, that you know, if I take off kind of my objective historian hat for a minute and put on my more subjective public historian hat, like, this is one of the reasons why I want scholars and practitioners of public history to read a book like mine, but also to read the literature that's being produced by religious studies scholars, because it does show, right, that there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about this. Some people want this in a museum, right? Some people want to take their friends to the Billy Graham Library to get them converted to Christianity. But if that's if that's one of the only ways that people can encounter religion in a museum setting is in these settings where proselytizing is a big part of it, like what a disservice to you know the, the public work of a historian to help people understand American history in its full complexity, right? We can do good interpretive work around religion, we got to be aware of the fuller context when we do that. Right. And I, I hope, you know, that my book is a modest contribution to that broader context. that's going to inform the way that public historians do their work and do their scholarship.
1: Yeah. And I think it is, it is a significant contribution. One of the things that you bring up a lot in, uh, or another thread that kind of runs through your book is uh, you're very sensitive to gender and particularly the role of women yeah. in, uh, getting many of these evangelical museums up and running you know behind the scenes and so forth i'm going to throw a couple names out give us a little kind of short capsule of their role so tell me something about helen uh i don't think you refer to her in the book this way i've always heard of her as helen ma sunday right you were very respectful not using the ma but but helen sunday who was she yeah, yeah. Uh so Helen Sunday uh was the widow of Billy
0: Graham, Billy Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Helen Helen Sunday was the there's too many Billies in this book yeah, frankly. Yeah. Uh Helen Sunday was the widow of Billy Sunday who was a kind of gilded age revival preacher. Um, He died in 1935. A part of what made Helen Sunday uh, kind of a household name in the same way that her husband was a household name in early 20th century America was her connection to him, right? Was her status as Ma Sunday, her status as a wife, her status as a mother. What uh, people often didn't know is she was also the brains behind his kind of revivalist empire. She was the administrator behind the scenes, you know, booking the locations, booking the venues, you know, reaching out to the grassroots to get this support, funding these camp, you know, working with funders. Um, so her career was really predicated on him. And when he dies in 1935, you know, she's suddenly at this point of sort of like, well, what am what am I going to do now? Right. Right. Um, She does a number of things. One of the things that she does is become a museum curator, right? Uh, Maybe not in a sort of professional credentialed sense, but she turns her home that she shared with Billy in Winona Lake, Indiana, which is this little resort town in northern Indiana, um, she turns their home into a house museum. Uh, in the 1930s, 1940s, Winona Lake was kind of a magnet for lots of different Christians of lots of different denominational flavors, right? Um, you know, not just fundamentalists or evangelicals, but lots of different denominational flavors. For uh, you know, they would have these big uh, Bible conferences full of different preachers. You could different sessions. There's a big tabernacle where people gathered, right? But part of what Helen Sunday was offering to these tourists, right, was the opportunity to go through the home of this great. Uh, respected revival preacher, right? So she becomes, uh, she she kind of manages not his his revival empire then, but his legacy, right? In
1: a very material sense by becoming the curator of this house museum. Oh, by the way, Winona Lake, Indiana, if you'd ever get a chance to visit that, if you're into this kind of stuff, it's a fascinating place. There's a Christian college there. There's also a museum, a uh, little museum. You got the Sunday house, Um, you know, it's, it's, it's William Jennings Bryan used to go through there a lot and the old, it used to be a Chautauqua stop on the Chautauqua circuit. It's really got some interesting history uh, about that. I think there was, maybe you ran across this guy. There was a Bob Jones University professor named Mark Sidwell who wrote a PhD dissertation on Winona Lake. Probably you and I are the only ones apart from Sidwell who maybe have ever looked at that. that John, I I read it on microfilm
0: (laughs) when I was working on this book. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it's the only I, time I've ever had to do anything on microfilm was yeah. to read Sidwell's dissertation.
1: I, I, uh, one of the first things I ever published, uh, was in the journal of in 1994 was in the journal of Illinois history. I wrote a piece on Billy Sunday, 19, I think it was 1918 Chicago crusade about prohibition. It was uh, like a grad student paper that I, that I, uh, you know, just sort of submitted and you know got it published, awesome. but he's a facet I mean that whole Sunday story is just fascinating. We could do a whole other podcast on that. I'm imagining yeah. who was lois firm she's she's even more obscure, but very but one important of player. yeah, one of my favorite kind of historical
0: figures that I got to write about in this in this project so lois firm uh was um. a a librarian, a teacher, Uh, she was a graduate, uh, she did her undergraduate work at Houghton College uh, up in New York, eventually gets a PhD in, uh, I think it's library science and information literacy or something like that, um, from the University of Minnesota. She worked with Timothy Smith, who was a famous uh, historian of Christianity, right? He was at Minnesota before he went to, I think, Johns Hopkins. Um, but she uh, becomes involved in efforts to uh, commemorate Billy Graham. So uh, her husband, Bob Firm, was an editor and worked for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, you know, from, I think, 1949 or 1950, uh, you know, throughout the 60s and 70s. And by the 60s, Billy Graham is starting to think about, okay, what's the, you know, where does, um, how do I preserve my legacy, right? Which is, you know, a question that people, someone like Billy Graham would be asking right that at that point in his career. Um, So he, he starts to ask these questions and, you know, he realizes that, oh, Bob's wife, right, has some experience here, right? She's a librarian. She's got some archival training. And so he calls her in and he says, hey, help me to brainstorm what I can do with all of the kind of material legacy of my revival crusades, my organization up to this point. So Lois Firm becomes kind of an architect of what eventually becomes the Billy Graham Center Museum at Wheaton College. Uh, she, she starts an oral history program that grows over the decades. You can still go to, to the Billy Graham archives at Wheaton and, and, uh, listen to these oral histories that she produced. Um, she really does become a curator of Graham's memory and Graham's legacy. And I don't want to give too much away from the book because I actually think this is one of the, um, most, uh, dramatic chapters in the book, right? But, uh, let's suffice it to say that Lois Firm, despite, how important she is in in curating Graham's legacy, in coming up with the idea that becomes the Billy Graham Center Museum, really gets sidelined from the project. Um, And the the reasons why she gets sidelined from the project and how it happens um, is it it tells us some things about the the function of evangelical heritage uh, and the way that these museums get constructed, right?
1: yeah yeah it's a fascinating story that i don't think i've i knew nothing about it the name firm yeah, for some reason that name sounded familiar with me i've run across the name before but I'm glad you left that as kind of a, a cliffhanger right go by the book and find out about uh the fate of this uh this woman Lois firm but it does make sense that you know you know you know american religious history well right women women have always been, uh, you know, the people going to church, women have always been uh, the, the, the people who are making churches go and function. So it makes perfect sense that they would be very active behind these kind of evangelical heritage museums. and one of the realities too, is that in the history
0: of public history, women have played a huge role in creating museums. So if you read something like Patricia West's book, Domesticating History, which I think came out in the mid nineties, she makes the case that women are central to the origins of house museums in the United States, which, you know, I think still today, but certainly in the early part of the 20th century were the primary way that millions of Americans were encountering stories of American history, right? Uh, Women are crucial to this project. And I I was fascinated by people like Helen Sunday and Lois Berm because they enabled me to bring these two discrete subfields, right? Public history and American religious history into conversation with each other in a
1: way that they previously hadn't been. Yeah, absolutely. They're kind of the linchpins, the bridge in some ways. Let's unpack this idea of evangelical heritage and how it specifically plays out, right, in some of the museums. So As you were talking, I just just to refresh my memory, I jotted down the list of the of the museums that you study. Right. We've talked about the Museum of the Bible. You've mentioned the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. We haven't said much yet about the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, uh, which is probably the right. The newest Well, Museum of the Bible was newer. Right. But it was it was. You know i can't remember the dates um and then you actually have a a half a chapter on uh, park street church which is on the boston uh freedom trail you know we've talked about this evangelical heritage in a kind of general kind of umbrella way but as i read your book that idea of evangelical heritage plays out in slightly different ways in each museum now Let's not try to just go boom, boom, boom through every one of them, but maybe you can give us some examples of the kind of nuances that this kind of evangelical heritage takes, uh, some more overt perhaps than in other places, but all still serving these kind of larger ends that you traced at the beginning of the interview. Talk a little bit about, you know, maybe how some of these museums are actually different when it comes to evangelical heritage.
0: So one of the things I said at the start of the interview, right, is that part of what I call evangelical heritage in this book, part of that concept is this idea that evangelical heritage is a way of thinking about history and thinking about the purposes of history. One of the claims I make in the book is that the purpose of history for evangelicals is often deeply utilitarian, right? So history has to do something to the people that encounter it. And for evangelicals, that something is conversion. So for a great many of these museums, the point of encountering history is to become a Christian convert. That if you hear these great stories and you learn about the biographies of these great men, right? And again, it's usually men in these museums, at least the ones that are being interpreted. If you hear these stories, if you read these biographies, if you encounter this stuff, that encounter, that experience is going to lead you to want to become a Christian, to convert to Christianity. Now that's nuanced at some of these places right so for instance we talked about um helen sunday becoming a curator of the home that she shared with with billy right it becomes a house museum Helen Sunday is not getting visitors who aren't already Christians, right? All the people that come to Winona Lake are already Christians, right? Uh, so she's not trying to convert anyone from being a non-believer to being a believer. What she's converting people to, right, what she sees uh, as the purpose of telling Billy Sunday's story, she wants to bring these denomination, denominationally different Christians who come to Winona Lake, she wants to give them a a kind of common heritage, right? That centers on Billy Sunday, that centers on the revivalistic tradition that Sunday is a part of, but gives them a kind of sort of common narrative for thinking about themselves as, you know, as a people, right, as a group. Uh, Benedict Anderson, right, would call this an imagined community, right, these people who otherwise wouldn't interact with each other, thinking of themselves as something common. And so the case that I make, right, is that she's converting them to thinking of themselves as evangelicals, right, This, this category that's beyond Presbyterian, or Methodist, or Baptist, right, thinking of them, and she uses history to do this, right, she uses the story of Billy Sunday to do this. Now, at places like the Billy Graham Center Museum at Wheaton, right? The the proselytizing, the conversion of non-believers to believers is much more explicit. Uh, so I don't know, John, you you and I were talking, uh, you've been to the Billy Graham Center Museum, but for those of you who haven't, yeah. Yeah. For those of you that haven't, right, there are kind of three discrete exhibit areas. The first two exhibit areas, if you went into them, they would feel like pretty much any other museum that you would go into, right? Um, Displaying objects, text panels, video, kind of diorama type settings that you might walk through or might walk past, right? It it, it, it codes very much like a traditional museum. And then you get to the third exhibit space, uh, what they call the walk through the gospel. Uh, And you start this walk through the gospel by walking through a doorway into a hallway. And that doorway is shaped like a big cross, right? And so you walk into this hallway and suddenly uh, everything around you is is pitch black, right? There's very few lights, like track lighting on the floor or something like that. The walls are painted black. The only thing that you can really see in these hallways are some Bible verses written in white text on on the walls. And so you wander through this kind of labyrinth of, of, uh, you know, dark hallways. And uh, then suddenly you turn a corner, right? In from this labyrinth of dark hallways. And you're suddenly like accosted by this classical music. I think it's a Bach, uh, 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 a piece by Bach, right? Uh, And everything is lit up. The walls look like kind of cumulus clouds are all over them, right? The way that curators intend this to function, right? Is that you are experiencing the death and then the resurrection of Christ. So all the Bible verses that you read when you're in this labyrinth, right, are about Christ's crucifixion. They're about Christ's time in the tomb. And then you turn the corner into this brightly lit, you know, classical music-filled room that looks like clouds, and you're supposed to be in heaven, right? You have ascended, you have risen from the depths of death, and you are now in this new life, right? This new eternal life in heaven. Once you walk out of the heaven room in this exhibit, uh, you are met, I think back in the day, they used to have actual like um, volunteers who would be there to hand out like tracts, right, or like um, one of those uh, conversion cards that they used to pass out at Billy Graham uh revivalistic services i don't think they do that anymore but you certainly receive some kind of invitation to think about your salvation to think to inviting you to convert to christian faith so the proselytizing there is very very overt right um then you have a, a museum like the museum of the bible Right. Again, I said before, stones throw away from the Smithsonian, just off the National Mall in Washington, D.C., right at the heart of kind of the American um, commemorative landscape. Right. Steve Green, who was one of the pr- principal financial backers of the Museum of the Bible, he did want this to be a conversionist experience, right? And so he, he actually went to the Billy Graham Library, wh- which is very conversionistic, very proselytizing, came back with one of those decision cards and told the people at the museum that were putting together the Museum of the Bible, I want to do this here, right? Uh, and they kind of talked him away from that, right? The idea being that something that explicitly proselytizing isn't going to work in a space um, where these traditional museums exist too, right, that that wouldn't be taken seriously, that it would maybe hurt the the mission or the respectability of the museum. But one of the things I argue in the book is that there's there's still conversion happening at the Museum of the Bible, right? The narrative, um, the way that the Museum of the Bible presents the Bible is very positive. It's a very positive approach to the Bible, very positive about the influence of the Bible on American society. My argument would be that it minimizes maybe ways that the Bible has been used um, quite harmfully throughout American history, say to um, to justify slavery, right? Uh, so it's this very positive treatment of the Bible. It it sort of assumes that visitors will have a a positive impression or will leave with a positive impression. And so part of the argument that I make in the book is that um, it's maybe not trying to explicitly convert you to Christianity, but is certainly trying to convert you kind of to the righteousness of the Bible and maybe even to the righteousness of like American nationalism, right? That the Bible has been a part of building this nation. The Bible is one of the foundations upon which this nation rests Uh, so it's a it's still a conversionist enterprise, um, but in a more subtle or um maybe covert. I think I use the language of of covert conversion uh in in the final chapter
1: of the book. Yeah, this I think is also the same kind of mentality behind uh, again, if we get to Philadelphia, check out uh it's in the Wells Fargo building there, right across the street from the Jewish uh the Museum, the the liberty faith and liberty center that the american bible society has created it's very similar i think they use the museum of the bible as their their kind of model for this right this kind of subtle kind of conversion to almost a, a kind of christian view of america right which is very much part of this evangelical heritage that you're that you're referring to that's really really helpful so last question i want to ask you you know what would You know, is it possible, I guess, to this is kind of playing off the last question, is it possible to do a museum on evangelical history? I'm sure it is right. And not have it be shaped by this kind of conversionist evangelical heritage that you're talking about i mean it would almost be it would almost be you'd have to be completely removed from you you just have to be almost fascinated with evangelical history with no vested interest in you know the theological or spiritual dimensions of it i guess it's possible But it seems like this evangelical heritage that you're talking about almost inevitably built in with evangelicals building museums about evangelicalism is going to be this, this, this conversion or this attempt to lead people to Christ or whatever you want to call it. Are there any museums out there? And maybe I'll broaden this question. Are there museums out there that do evangelical history well, or maybe even religion well, right? Period. Um, if you want to take it as, if you want to take it that far, you don't have to, but, but I'm just curious, you know, is, is this possible? Are there examples out there, you know, that, that you think are, and again, in some ways we're putting a kind of moral, we're making this a moral question, right? I think what you're trying to argue is, you know, you're not saying that these museums are bad or good They're You're just trying to analyze them. Right. But I'm just curious about, is there a way to do evangelical history without kind of the proselytizing uh dimensions to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no it's a good it's a good question John I think it's a fair question right. And so I'll I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. The one thing I would say is that um the so I've referred already to the Billy Graham Center Museum that's at Wheaton College um, and I've referred to the fact that the first two exhibits that you walk through there code very much as traditional museum exhibits. And I would say that actually some of the history that gets interpreted in those spaces um, is, is pretty pretty decent history, right? I don't agree with every representation or interpretation that's taken. I think there are some things that are missing. Um, it's a very positive evaluation of uh, evangelicalism, um, which wouldn't be surprising, Right. I did find in my research that when... So that, that museum opened in 1980. Uh, and at the time, Mark Knoll, who is a you know very respected historian of American religion, has written a lot about evangelicalism. I did um, see in the archives that he... Um, read some of the exhibit scripts before that exhibit, you know, and offered some advice and some feedback in that process. So part of the case that I'm trying to make here, right, is that in 1980, when this exhibit opened, the literature that was available on the history of evangelicalism for these curators to draw on in creating their exhibit, they were doing that, right? They were drawing on the literature that existed at the time. They were reflecting the state of kind of American religious history at the time. And it's it's a pretty good interpretation, right? Now, I would say that that is the um, that's the exception, right? I don't know that I would say something similar about any of the other um, museums uh, that I that I write about in this book. I, I do think it's possible, but I think as you say, right, like it it would have to not come out of evangelicalism itself, right? Or. Because I would I would say that, you know, largely the evangelicals who are doing this work are are more conservative theologically and politically. Um, I think even progressive evangelicals, right. Like if Jim Wallace tried to start a museum that interprets evangelical history, like I still think it would reflect some of this evangelical heritage, again, just because of the way that evangelical theology um sort of shapes how people perceive history and the purposes of history um, and maybe even the practices that go into exhibiting that history. Uh, On that point, I will simply say kind of to your broader question about can religion be done well in museums? I think it can and it definitely is. And one of the examples I would point to uh, is the Smithsonian uh, Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. I believe it was in twenty. 17 or 18 that they hired their first curator of religion since the 19th century. <laughs> uh, Peter Manso is his name. He's a great scholar, great kind of public intellectual um, and, a, and a historian of American religion. And he's done two great exhibits so far. Um, the first one that I that I was able to go to was in 20 I think 2017 or 2018 the exhibit opened um, called Religion in Early America a fantastic exhibit, Um, you know, again, very reflective of the literature, the state of the field, you know, clearly drawing on the expertise of scholars. Uh, There's a new one that has just opened that I haven't been to yet that is on uh, the relationship between religion and science in American history. I'm really excited to go to that. But I think he's, he's dealing well, he and his staff are dealing well with religion in those exhibits, and I hope are creating a model that other smaller institutions
1: can look to for how to do this work well. I read the uh, guidebook or the, you know, I I read that in manuscript for Peter Mansell, who, by the way, has also been a guest on this podcast book on the Jefferson Bible. Yeah. Um, And actually our former colleague, I guess he's former now, Ted Davis consulted on the science with, with Mansell on the science and religion. Yeah, they do. They do do it very well. You know, I, I thought that the, I thought that the museum of the Bible um exhibit was not great, but it was it was okay. I mean I think I think Mark Knoll was also an advisor on that, but they also tended to lean towards more respectable academics that were a little more conservative leaning. Uh, people like I think Daniel Dreisbach, a political scientist who writes about religion and the founders Tommy Thomas Kidd was involved in that. You know, I th- I thought that was close to I, I could you know I wrote a piece on this in a I think I said an edited collection where where I kind of I think the I think the editors were expecting me to trash it a little bit more than I <laughs> than I did you know I tried to give it a kind of honest portrayal um, you know and it, I thought that was okay too probably similar to but the field had moved so much since 1980. I think it was the kind of people who probably would have made the same choices on the Billy Graham Museum in Wheaton that made the choices on the the American floor of the of the of the Museum of the Bible. Yeah, so interesting. The book folks is exhibiting evangelicalism, commemoration and religion's presence of the past. The author who we have been talking to for the last few minutes has been Devin Manzullo Thomas, uh, my colleague at Messiah University and one of our uh, young up and coming uh, American religious historians. Look for more from him in the future. Uh, Devin, thanks so much for taking some time in the middle of a a work day. Come on and talk. Great book. Uh, I learned a lot from it. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciated it. Well, that was definitely a treat. Devin Manzullo-Thomas is doing fascinating work on these evangelical museums. And you notice in the last question, you know, I asked him, are there any good evangelical museums? It wasn't really a, a good historical question of me to ask, because he is studying these museums as a scholar, and he is really interested in the way in which this kind of idea of evangelical heritage draws people into the study of the past. So for him, it's not a good or bad uh, kind of question. I think Devin has his personal views about that as well, but he's, he's trying to be a good scholar uh, about this writing and this, uh, this, this academic but very accessible um book exhibiting evangelicalism. Again, a lot of interesting. I'd encourage you to try to visit if you're into this stuff, to visit some of these museums he writes about. Uh, I thought his his description of the uh Billy Graham Museum in Wheaton with the with the entering into heaven kind of thing was was fascinating. I think I toured that museum back in the 80s or, or late 80s, early 90s, maybe, and was really, really struck by. Uh, that transition into this kind of heavenly experience, this conversion experience. I said this in the interview, I've had some of my own experiences with this, working with the American Bible Society's uh, Discovery Liberty Discovery Center, or whatever it's called. Uh, The Museum of the Bible is another really interesting place to go. I got to get to the Helen Sunday, Billy Sunday house next time I'm in Winona Lake. Uh, Jared Burkholder, uh, professor there at Grace College, and Mark Norris at Grace College in Winona Lake. You guys are going to have to invite me back out there and give me a tour. But nevertheless, check this book out if you want to. As I said in the opening, if you want to go into these evangelical museums with a critical eye, to see exactly what they're doing and what they're presenting uh, exhibiting evangelicalism is the book for you. Uh, Again, Devin's doing some really, really important work here. And as we were wrapping up, I was saying, I think his voice is going to be very, very important. As we move towards the 250th anniversary of the United States, I think there's going to be a lot of debate and discussion here about uh, kind of the relationship between evangelicals and American history as presented to the public. So uh, so I'm sure Devin will be able to help us and guide us through all of that. So thanks for listening, folks. Uh, we are back after a five-month hiatus. Of course, depending on how you're listening to these podcasts, you may have no clue about that. But after five months, we're back and uh, we got this lineup for you over the course of the next several episodes. So uh, Again, thanks for listening. And as always, may your Way of Improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley-Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman out of Nashville. And I, John Field and your host.